0: This is Jamal Ali of the African Diaspora Going Home Show, where it's all about the inspiration, the information, ideas, and tools that motivates the listener to go back home to Africa. Today, I have with me a colleague, a friend, and if there ever was an artist, artist, she'd be the one. <laughs> Coming to us all the way from Accra, Ghana, West Africa, Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome to the show, Rania O'Daymat. Rania, how are you?
1: I'm good, Jamal. I mean, I feel like dancing after that welcome you just gave me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you could dance, but right now i would be the only one would be able to see you, but hopefully we can show that to the viewers a little later. But... Um, Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is a a pleasure uh, to be here with you, and I do uh, consider you uh, a friend for sure. Uh, We haven't met yet personally, face-to-face, person-to-person, but it's coming. We know that, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Awesome. I'm looking
1: forward to that.
0: I am as well. I am as well. (laughs) So listen, before we dive deep into this conversation, uh, I want to ask you, If money or time wasn't an issue or an object, where would you be in the world? What would you be doing? And who would you be doing it with?
1: I'd be here in Accra, doing what I'm doing with the people I'm doing it with.
0: Okay, nice, simple answer, which means then you're really enjoying yourself right where you are.
1: Yes, this is, I mean, I've traveled a lot over the world and uh, this is the only place that has ever felt like home. Really? Yeah.
0: Okay, so so what is it about Accra, Ghana, that makes you feel at home?
1: Um, it's never just, it's not one thing, you know, Jamal. It's a, I guess it's a combination of things. Um, Yes, part of it is I have roots in history here and, and narratives and stories. Um, but I think uh, there are other aspects such as the relationships. Some of the dearest people to me are in Accra. Some of the people uh, with whom I share partnerships and collaborations are in Accra. Some of the dearest people in the world to me are in Accra. And, um, you know, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. There is so much that we're missing in terms of justice, fairness, infrastructure, empowerment, you know, all of those things. And yet, it's also a place that has many special things. One of them is the human warmth and the capacity for connection which to me is very important in terms of quality of life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I find that um, in general, again, you know, you can't sort of stereotype a whole nation or a whole country anywhere. Mm-hmm. But, but in general, I think we find it more often than not in Accra than in other places. Uh, people are gen- genuinely generous, welcoming. You know, we have this akwaba, the, 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 the welcome, which is very much part, part of the culture Mm-hmm. uh when people smile it it just it, it it feels like it's a smile from the soul again this is a generalization we're not you know going into individuals or particulars mm-hmm. and for me one of the most amazing things is that although we have a lot of poverty so many times looking at people with very little you find a lot of generosity of spirit and a lot of sharing which I don't see so much in other places in the world. Um, The other thing is that it is a place where I feel I'm needed and other people are needed because there's so much room to grow. There is so much to be done. Um, There's potential for dreaming. And to me, that's very important. But there's also a soul and a very, very long history uh, whether we're talking in terms of genetics or culture or, or uh, storytelling or spirituality, you know, on all those levels. And these are things that resonate a lot with me. Otherwise, of course, uh, the food, the music, all of that, but that's, you know, I grew up with that, the vibrancy, I grew up with that. So this is something I appreciate and I love, the flavor, you know, the flavor. Yes. Yeah, that's what I, I look for that when I travel, you know, what is the flavor of, of specific places and I think mm. we have that here
0: Wow Wow, powerful powerful answer, you know In talking to other people or pretty much anybody on the continent I get What you just said a couple of things it I get all the time one it's shared that you know this place is not perfect you know we have issues with this that and the other and then they go to the other side that has nothing to do with money or fame or wealth or any of that it's all about people and the soul and the spirit and the flavor and all of that right and and so it's it's an amazing thing to keep hearing over and over and over again so even though we have 54 countries in Africa, it seems that the spirit of the continent is the same no matter what country you're in, you know?
1: Yes. But then again, I think I think there's a little bit of a danger of, of having a single narrative, you know, and mm-hmm. saying that um, all of Africa is the same. Definitely, this is a part of it. Like, I haven't been to all African countries. I haven't been to most of them even. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been to, to several African countries, and yes, I have felt that flavor, but I haven't felt it in the same ways. Right, And and also the, the relationships, you don't feel them in the same ways. So I think, yes, yes, it, there's a part of that that is true, but it's not like it's one brush stroke where, mm-hmm. and I think so many times, why? I'm saying this is that we're so used to hearing a single narrative for Africa, either it's the ooh poor or uh, you know uh, a terrible uh, tragic continent, or it's it's the myth of a, of a of a one continent that is a whole that is uniform in a way, mm-hmm. or that it's there is a single narrative always, either the concentration camp or the uh, uh, I mean you know the um, the war camps or and and I think this hurts because Africa is much more complex and mm-hmm. has so many more stories mm-hmm. than just a single like stereotype or broad um, you know uh, image.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a that's a great answer but and, and so to clarify on my end as well and, and to speak to that uh, the other part of that is that that I do hear, it's, if you're in Ghana, the culture is different than if you're in Uganda. If in Uganda, it's different than uh, Kenya. If you in Kenya, it's different than Gambia. So all of them, again, bring their own unique flavor and culture, but I guess the oneness in it all is that they're, they're all African people. That's, that's the oneness. So as you said, there, there's, there are going to be many differences always because you have different countries and cultures and languages and food and oh just I was talking to a brother the other day he said look in in the Gambia they make uh fufu different than they do in uh in Ghana right because he he was he, and he shared this with me which which was a revelation he says because in I think it was in uh the Gambia they do it with yams versus uh What they use in 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 uh ghana because they don't grow what they use in ghana in um in the gambia so they use yams for the for the uh fufu right i was like wow that's that's interesting you know
1: yeah well in ghana we use cassava for the fufu but there are two types of fufu so you can either do the cassava fufu or you can do the one with plantains And both are really good. (laughs) Like when you come here, you really have to try them with some light soup. Yes. That's (laughs) comfort food to the max.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. So now let's talk a little bit about your roots and and your family and and how you ended up in Ghana, if that's even a question.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So my family, my family came to Ghana uh before there was a Ghana. It was still the Gold Coast and under British rule.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, there are two family stories, and we could never really because it was a long time ago, like my kids are fifth generation already.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: there are two family stories, and we could never figure out which one was the most accurate because they're both very plausible. Mm-hmm. And so one of them was that um it was a mistake or serendipities. what happened was my ancestors were in what is now today lebanon but then back then it wasn't lebanon mm-hmm. it was part of the damascus protectorate under ottoman empire mm-hmm. and uh, my ancestor was a wheat merchant who uh, lost everything at one point and after being a very successful trader and he wanted a fresh start. So what they had left was uh, my great-great-grandmother's like jewelry, they sold that. And with the money, they bought tickets to the U.S. because that there was a wave of immigration to the U.S. as the land of dreams or, you know, mm-hmm. at, at that time. And um, It was very common for sea captains to take your money in those days and just dump you, uh, wherever they happened to be going. And if you didn't have any extra money, uh, to, to travel again, you were stuck and you had to make it wherever you were left. So one story is that they had originally planned to go to the U S but then they were dumped in Ghana and they made do. The other story is that, uh, my, my great-great-great-grandma's uh, uncle, one of her uncles, had come to, to Ghana, mm. and so there is that idea that she might find someone that she knows when she comes here, and that they came to Ghana, went looking for him, and he found him in a village somewhere, you know, with eighty kids and uh, I don't know how many wives. And he shooed them away and said, "What do you think you're doing? Go away, go away! I don't know you, you know." But but that's that's not very plausible because mm-hmm. I, I tend to think the first story it used to happen quite a bit, and also, um, you know, with the with the second story. How would they find him at a time where there were no phones or no communication? And Ghana is very big. And oh. also, when I compare it to the first time my great-great-grandma came to Ghana, you know, it took a lot of travel by uh, by sea. And and uh, and so I know that for the first 50 years that she was in Ghana, she could never travel, nor communicate or talk with her family. Back in what is now Lebanon, so they all thought she was dead. So I don't see how the second story of this stereotypical guy, you know, who who, who could be, I, I think. But anyway, so yeah, they, these are two versions, and so my um, they started off. So my my ancestors came here with nothing and had to start their life. Obviously, like two guineas. In those days, uh, they were white, but then to the British, they were not white. Mm-hmm. So they, 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 they had this unique like, and, and they went inland, lived in Second D first, and then moved to Coferidua. And that's where, uh, and my, my ancestors started trading in commodities, and he started very small basically, because this is what he knew how to do. And he did not have money like to have big stock or anything like that. And so my grandfather and his brother grew up in, in Kofaridwa and went to school over there. There was a Baptist mission in those days and they were probably the only two white boys over there. Mm-hmm. And because my grandfather was physically fit and, and very sporty, he played football, it was very important to play good football.
0: <laughs> he, he
1: got nicknamed Tarzan, but in Ghana you say Tazan Uh on the field and it's a name that stayed with him his whole life he was known as tarzan and so uh, when he established uh, his company his transport business with his childhood friend mate komodo uh, there was no other name but tarzan so the red trucks were known yeah (laughs) i mean my and then eventually my grandfather became the chief of tishinua which is the area around ghana uh, he was uh, he he was part of the freedom movement to, to free Ghana, one of the first people to give up his British citizenship. He was very close to President Krumah, believed in the possibility of, of freedom and, and emancipation. And during Kwame Nkrumah's regime, he was one of the speakers for Ghana at the UN. And he worked a lot like in... Um, uh, pushing policy to include women in the Air Force. Uh, he spoke for the rights of nurses and things like that at the time.
0: Wow. That's that's some history right there. Okay. So did, did you, that was your grandfather, right? Did he actually have a relationship with uh, Kwame Nkrumah?
1: Oh yes, I, I mm-hmm. even have pictures of them together. Yes?
0: Awesome. Yes. Awesome. Mm-hmm. That is wonderful, wonderful. So now, Accra is what, 15, 20 million or so? Uh,
1: yeah, probably, but then again, I'm not sure how right the census are because, I mean, there are areas like Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, or where I don't think it's very easy to, to guess exactly how many people live.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But yeah,
0: probably a lot.
1: Hmm?
0: A lot. Either way, it's a yeah. lot of people, right? Yeah. So, do, um, are the villages that a lot of the, um, or how, how close are the villages to actually to a Do you have to really go two or three miles, two or three hours out to, to get to the villages? Or, or is it a little closer than that? Uh, it
1: depends It depends what village you're going to.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, if
1: you're going, and and again, what is, I mean, not villages, but let's say a city like Tamaleu in the north of Ghana, mm-hmm. it can take you 11, 12 hours if you're going by car. Okay. So um, it depends if you're going higher up to Volgatanga. you know, it takes a, a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going east or west, like with um, uh, uh, border with Lome, with Togo, you know, our neighboring country, mm-hmm. it used to, when we were kids, it used to take us about two hours, but um months ago I, I made the trip and because of traffic and you know a lot of congestion it took me about 6 hours by road um if you're going to but that's that's mainly because of the traffic not because of the distance i mean if right. you're driving you know um to to ivory coast um on the western side um it, it's not too long. So these are not really villages, you know, but just to right. give you an idea. So depending on, on where you're going and what village you're going through, yeah, you can get to some villages in, in 45 minutes or an hour, or, but depends on which region they are in.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Good. What's the education system like there?
1: It's very bad. It's mm-hmm. very bad, Jamal. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one thing that I don't tire of speaking out against. This is one thing my friends, you know, we speak out against so much because basically Kwame Nkrumah was brought down when he started talking about. I mean, there are, obviously he faced a lot of opposition from within Ghana and within other African countries. He was mm-hmm. a visionary. He was thinking ahead. Yes, yes. you know, and and when he. Uh, decided and started really pushing for reform in the educational system. Our country was one of the first, perhaps the first to to make um, education uh, free and compulsory and to have public education. But, But then at one point he realized that the educational system is very tied to the church. But the problem is that the church was brought by a mission and was very much part of a specific political and and cultural-like system of belief and ideas. And so he realized at one point that unless they separated the church from the educational system, and he wasn't against the church or faith or anything like that. He wanted to keep the church. But he just felt that in order to move forward, we have to separate the two. The church cannot control. What people are learning Mm -hmm. uh, that's when you know a lot of people came together to bring him down and it's still the same today and so i think our educational system is is very poor we're not investing in our human capital at all Mm -hmm. we're not healing the trauma of the past our educational system does not promote critical thinking It does not promote problem solving. It does not promote creative and innovative thinking. Mm
0: -hmm. It promotes
1: um, parroting and followership. It doesn't promote empowerment. And so this is why, I mean, we are an extremely rich country in terms of natural resources. We are blessed, but we haven't invested in our human capital and that's education. Again, you have outliers, you have people who come out of that educational system and just break all the rules, but then these are the minority. In the majority of the cases, that educational system is actually shaping the way people think. And when you grow up with an educational system based on phrases such as, don't bring yourself, Who else should I bring back myself, you know? Or or don't bring yourself means, don't put yourself forward. Mm -hmm. So what, I should stay back, I should stay in the shadows, you know, and then you have sentences like, you're too known, means to to make you a little bit ashamed of of being a braggart or knowing too much or questioning too much. Uh, You have respect your elders. Look, I think it's amazing to honor and respect your elders. But in this case, it's used not as a sign of honoring and respect, but rather uh, to promote, you know, um, following and not no innovation and saying that, oh, my elder hasn't done it, so I shouldn't do it, or I shouldn't speak out against what is being done or this sort of thing. And there's very few art classes, very few cultural studies. Now the British uh, system put in place an educational system where local languages are not taught at school. And also, you know, I think it would have been difficult because when the colonies were were cut up or divided, let's say, you know, the tribes were cut up. So you, you ended up having new countries with so many different tribes what language to pick. But anyway, regardless of what we think of that, English became the official language. And, and there, there are no cultural studies in the majority of schools, and if there are, or art studies. So no art, creativity, or culture. And if you do find them, you find like, um A very bad example of them, you know, and, but Kwame Nkrumah really believed that if you don't invest in your arts and culture, you will not be able to experience and exercise your freedom. You will not have your own narrative. You will not be able, you will not be the agents of your own change.
0: Kwame Nkrumah was right. And Mm -hmm. thus he was taken out of the way so you know this is all by design the reason that in my humble opinion based on my studies that africa on the whole is in the position that she's in today is it's it's most of it comes out of if not all of it comes out of the effects of the berlin conference which was designed to do exactly what it did. Divide Africa up, into so many little, little, little pieces. Dumb down education, dumb down the, the ability to think for yourself, create followers. The exact same thing, the exact thing that we're getting in Africa, this is all planned and by design. And so part of my mission is to, to educate and provide, tools and and resources that one can use to empower and invigorate the mind to create critical thinking about who we really are as an African people, right? Uh, So that we can control the narrative, we can control our own human capital, things of that nature. So it's really criminal What's going on not only in Ghana but in Gambia and in all these other places it's it's just criminal i mean that there's in, in my opinion there's no other way to put it you know um, to see a child not be able to express him or herself just being a natural child that's criminal that's criminal, so as you said before uh and as we hear so many times, it's it's not perfect, and I don't. That might even be a, uh, an understatement. It's far from 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 that. Um, so, as far as education goes, that's that's one thing. What would you say the other Achilles heel would be, if you will, the, the thing that definitely needs to change? Yeah,
1: many things. Infrastructure, basic infrastructure. Like so many um, uh, areas don't have running water. They have to buy water on a day-to-day basis. So many areas have, uh, outhouse, uh, don't have bathrooms. Uh, they, they pay for a bathroom. We're talking about 30% and that's not in the rural areas. We're talking about Accra. Um, and, and also, hmm?
0: Accra as well?
1: Yeah, yeah but Accra is re- really big. Mm-hmm. You know, greater Accra, it's, it's, it's a big city, it's not a small city. Right. And so if you're, if you're not in the central areas of Accra, there are many places in Accra where people buy their water on a day-to-day basis, have to pay for, to use a bath, uh, wash, you know, outhouse and, um, and basic infrastructure. Uh, we don't have enough basic infrastructure. We need so much more than what, what is available right now, and also um, health services and medical uh, services hospitals and and uh, you know hospital staff is paid very little mm-hmm. um, we haven 't invested in in those areas, um, yeah, so
0: wow, wow, incredible, incredible, you know I, I love during these interviews, because the more I speak with people there on the continent, so much more information is coming out. You know, I read a lot, but Hey, when you hear from somebody who's there on the ground and they can give it to you (laughs) firsthand, right. I was talking to a brother, uh, interviewed a brother a couple of days ago, and I asked him what is the average monthly income and he's from Ghana as well. And he says, about $400 USD, and I'm like, what? 400 average? he was saying that was yeah. about the average.
1: Maybe, it might even be less. See, um, like, it might yeah. even be less because yes. the greatest majority of our population burns, you know, day to day. So for example, now with COVID, you know, if your daily earnings go, what do you do? Or if they're lessened. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: So what's, what's the experience like there uh, now that COVID's been around? What's, what's the, how has day-to-day life changed in, in, in Accra because of COVID?
1: There, it depends. It depends um, on your circumstances. I think for the majority, when lockdown happened, uh, to me, it, it felt criminal in a way. Yes, I know that, you know, uh, the virus and you want to protect others and more contain the virus and all of that. But then, uh, when we have around 80% of the population that needs to work by day to survive, uh, it means that. Every day, these people don't work, they cannot eat. And so during that time, I would get phone calls on a daily basis of people I know being kicked out of their house or the children crying and hungry or uh, can't afford to pay their rent or can't afford to buy water today. Or, and to me, it, it made me mad. It made me incensed because... If you die of hunger or if you die, and we have so many more people dying of malaria than of COVID, we have so many people dying because they cannot afford to buy a box of antibiotics. They've got an infection, you know what I mean? And so how, I think, but again, it's a vicious cycle. I don't see how, I think the government has been trying to do the best that they can and sort of tow this line between because After they realized what was happening, they relaxed the lockdown. And, but the economy has been very hit, which also affects, you know, people. I know so many small and medium businesses who have completely collapsed. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I know so many people whose income has gone down a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this is gonna be felt for a very, very long time. And we still, we're still not out of it in terms of consequences and repercussions. Now we're talking about all of that uncertainty, not knowing uh, whether there's going to be another lockdown or not. If you're fortunate enough to be able to stay in your own home and to take care of your needs, I think it's, it's pretty good. you know. But if you're one of the people who needs to, to work today, and every other day, because to, to, to earn your income, then you're in deep shit.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: And again, it goes back to, you know, how, what did the government do? Because to start with, if we had infrastructure, let's say, if people did not need to pay for the outhouse or to pay for the me? water, or they had basic medical care, you know, or anything like that. Even if the government cannot provide too much money, it, won't be, it wouldn't be as terrible as, you know, when there is not enough support and this is the situation. But then again, people help each other. People are helping each other. You know, everybody's trying to do whatever they can and taking things with good spirit and, and, you know, listening to the news. And, and I mean, you have people who don't even believe in COVID, which sometimes I understand because I mean, yes, the virus is here, but then again, when you're thinking I could die of hunger right now, or that there's so many things killing me, you know, why why would I believe in something that is like might, um,
0: right, right.
1: It's it's human nature, Mm -hmm. but the majority maybe probably the majority, um, it, it has had a positive impact when it comes to, let's say general hygiene, you know, on the streets, because we have open gutters in many areas, not in everywhere, but in many areas, there are open gutters, um, there are outhouses, but without necessarily a place to wash your hands. So people are being much more careful about these things and much more careful about, um, washing and 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 protecting others and wearing masks.
0: Um. Wow, wow. Well, you know, this just brings home the the reality of how people in America as terrible as it is in many ways are so fortunate in so many ways that we take things for granted because we've, the things that are lacking in places like Ghana, we've always had. So it's unfathomable to us to to even think about going to the outhouse. Well, you know, when I, when I grew up in, uh, in rural, I didn't grow up, but uh, I was born in rural Georgia and I've gone to the outhouse when well, I used to visit my my grandparents, and I was raised in the city. But when I went back home, I used to spend the entire summers in Georgia, and so I did all of that, uh, going to the outhouse. And at first, I was like the outhouse. What, what do you mean going to the outhouse? <laughs> <laughs> Out where, you know? <laughs> and so it, uh, but to to have to encounter that on a daily basis for, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, that would be pretty devastating. But I guess when it's a reality, you just, you learn how to deal with it and, and, and you just go about your, about your day. But if you've experienced something different, then you have something to weigh it against and you can uh, see, it, it's just a bit different perspective when you're having something to, to, to weigh it against. Now, your family, uh, immediate family, large, small, husband, four or five kids, two dogs, what?
1: <laughs> I, I have a husband and three kids. That's my immediate family, yeah.
0: Okay. Boys and girls?
1: Yes, two boys and a girl.
0: Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Who's the oldest?
1: Um, a boy.
0: Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Are they uh, of um, university age? Uh, still in high school or what?
1: Yeah, yeah. Moody is in, uh, just graduated actually from university mm-hmm. and he, he wants to apply to, to do his master's degree. Mm-hmm. And then my second born is also a boy. His name is Ali. <laughs> yeah, wow. and, and he's, so Moody is now in Seattle with, uh, with my brother because he's, he was studying in San Diego. It was his last semester and they mm. had exams. And he's like, mom, dad, I'll just finish my exams and hop on the next flight to Accra. And mm. then the lockdowns happened and he couldn't make it. Right. And so he had to go, he, he went to Seattle, he stuck there, we're trying to figure out how to, to get him back now on an evacuation flight. Mm. My second son is also at university in Burn, Birmingham in the UK. Okay. But he, he was able to make it because it's his first year and you know there was not too much pressure. He didn't have any deadlines or anything like that. Very strict or hard deadlines. And then my daughter is the youngest. She's 12 and she's at home with us.
0: Okay, okay. Awesome, awesome. You got your helping hand around the house then, huh? Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> so with um, the current president, Announcing 2019 as the year of return, big media attention cent- centered around that. Um, I read some reports as many as 800,000 people visited over the uh, that year, about a year and a half or so, about 18 months. Um, have you seen any? Have you witnessed any any personal? Um, Effects of that, or or what what has it done to the spirit of the, the the city? You know, just how how has it been received?
1: How has it been received? I guess hmm, it depends in, in in which areas, in what way. Now, in terms of the overall effect, you know, I it's not yet felt on a national level, let's say, or on a policy level, or that. There's this big, and I'm not sure whether all of these people stayed. Probably, you know, most of them did not stay. Many just came to visit. Mm -hmm. So during those celebrations of the year of return, we had uh, a terrible crush in Accra to the point where uh, my husband, my kids, and friends you know decided to go out of Accra somewhere to the beach just because we couldn't move <laughs> it was impossible to move without being stuck for hours yeah. so yeah it felt uh, very overwhelming uh-huh. but it was mainly around that Christmas time you know and around the events afterwards mm, I don't think I felt it in terms of uh, uh, you know movement around the city or um, you know, um, in major ways, let's say. Of course, I hear like one of my friends, who's an uh, who's a photographer, uh, Francis Kokroko from Accra Photo. He was uh, following the story of, of people who have decided to move back to Ghana, and so he did a documentary with them about that. You know, um, I hear from friends. Uh, sometimes I'll meet someone. They say, "Oh, well." You know, they're considering that, they're coming to stay, but then it's not all the time or every day.
0: Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. Wow. The year of return. So now, in um the what well, let me ask you this. What's your your thought on the the current uh president and his administration? I mean, if it's gonna get you in trouble, you may not want to say anything, but <laughs> What are, you, what, are, what are your thoughts on the current uh, government? If you're at liberty to, to say.
1: Look, you have to respect uh, the figures of authority. Ultimately, I truly believe that our leadership resembles us as a majority, as a tipping point majority mm-hmm. in the perspective that, you know, uh, our degree of consciousness or unconsciousness as a tipping point majority, again, we, we put the leaders that reflect, uh, reflect us and not the other way around. So in many ways, we are responsible for that. I take responsibility, you know, whether as an individual or as a collective, we, ha- we have what we deserve, I think. And it is not perfect. I don't think any government will have it easy. But I also think I've been constantly, in so many ways disappointed because, again, of what I've been talking about, you know, I, I haven't seen any government, it's not just this one, have a vision, like a big vision with many parts where we have a whole panel of people actually working in concert to create a specific vision in the, in the short term, in the midterm, in the long term of how to grow. I think it's, it's very much ad hoc, you know, we're not in power, the people in power come, uh, they do this and that, and then they go, and then the other party, we have a two party system, a little bit like the US, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and then the next party comes and then they're doing their own thing, which is very similar to what the others were doing. But again, depending on the situation and on world politics and on the World Bank and on so many other things, you have variations. And on the uh, the person of, of the person the, the 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 government in charge, the president in charge. Or so um, are we? Do we have the best leadership?
0: Well, you know, it's, it's uh, the gentleman I interviewed the other day said pretty much the same thing. <laughs> and he said, look, Jamal, he said, ever since Kwame Nkrumah, ever since him, there really hasn't been much change. And I found that to be astonishing. I was like, really? Yes. Um, so you just it confirmed that with just that that answer now, you just confirm that that's 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 mind blowing but at the same time i understand because as i alluded to earlier it's all by design design this um berlin conference even though it happened years ago right it's still in effect it's still very, very effective, and it has still held. Africa, she's just treading water, and in some ways, she's she's going under. But Jamal, go ahead, dear.
1: This is not going to change. I, I, I'll tell you something like from a lot of work in mental health and my mental health from coaching so many people and supporting so many people over their processes for about 16 years. I can tell you about myself, you know, yes, you're right about the Berlin conference. Yes. You're right about the design. Yes. You're right. There are agendas. There will always be, mm-hmm. if it's not this, it's that it is all over the world. Mm-hmm. But again, just like if you grow up with trauma, okay. Mm-hmm. You cannot heal, you cannot, what Kwame Nkrumah says, forward ever, backward, never, unless you take full ownership and full responsibility. Mm-hmm. I had a breakdown, I had a terrible depression about 17 years ago, and and I couldn't literally like move, step forward as long as I thought of myself as a victim of mm-hmm. somebody else's design or somebody else's actions. Mm-hmm when you take, even when you are a victim, you know, of of this or that, thinking that, becoming that, allowing that to define you, you're giving the power, you're giving the power over your life and your narrative to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And for me, like two ladies who inspired me so much growing up are, for example, Maya Angelou and Nina Simone. Okay take that example of course there are no two lives that are exactly the same mm-hmm. but in the broad lines when we're talking about trauma the trauma was very similar mm-hmm. and yet the difference you know nina ended up spending the end of her life towards she was in a crowd, and she would sing sometimes in the jazz club you mm-hmm. know and with but most of the times was depressed and and in her drink and and It just broke your heart. She's, to me, she's one of my favorite singers and artists Mm -hmm. of all time. Mm -hmm. You know, when I listen to her, it just takes me outside of myself, allows me to feel pain in a way that feels so real in how you experience it. You know, Mm -hmm. I think she's brilliant. I love her voice, everything about her. But Mm -hmm. what saddens me is that Nina spent her life and I understand know with the sexual abuse with the racism so many other things the poverty and and the codependency the negative codependency and all of that but she was bitter she was angry and and she was full of rage Mm
0: -hmm.
1: maya angelou who had very similar circumstances okay became to me she was my greatest one of my greatest guides and teachers on how to be Beautiful, strong woman with a voice that is heard. She she also knew sexual abuse. She mm-hmm. she didn't speak for five years. Mm-hmm. She came from a lot of poverty. She knew racism to a degree that we can't imagine at this time, you know? Mm-hmm. And yet, it, it it gives me goosebumps because she owned her her future. She became a voice and an inspiration. To so many people all around the world. Was it easy? No. And and while during my healing there were examples like that, I love them both and I love their creative output. It's very difficult to pick because it's different, you know. I can't say which one I love more. Mm-hmm. But in terms of growth and self-help, Maya helped me in a way that Nina Simone couldn't. And this is something I've experienced myself that when I took ownership, when I took ownership, everything around me changed and my life experience and my relationships and and in my opportunities, everything changed. Of course you have to know that, but then, you know, I have an example, like one of my adopted sons, for example, uh, Moses, uh, Moses Ajay, an artist, he grew up in Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah is named after the bible you know but it's it's like the the most hellish places on earth i've been there i visited that uh, that place it's oh. it's just i mean in your it, in your most terrible tragic imaginings you it's very difficult to come up with something like that it's uh, a landfill it's one of the biggest e-waste dumps in the world uh, the degree of toxicity is similar to chernobyl or more you know and it's, it's home to the uh, copper mining, to all sorts of abuse. And so he grew up in Sodom and Gomorrah as a child, as a child with no parents, as an orphan. He was consistently raped. He was consensusly abused. He had once um, a hernia operated, his hernia, you know, uh, an operation with no anesthetic. Uh, uh, which he survived. I, I don't want to go into that, but okay. At one point, Moses was helped by an organization who who would look at kids and was sent to school in in Lavoni. But how I got to know Moses, a friend of mine who's uh, a humanitarian photographer was doing a story on uh, young adults in very difficult circumstances, and he happened to meet Moses and he saw him drawing. In that day he didn't have access to any any um, paints or anything like that with a bullpen you know with the inks, ink ink in in a big pen you know those pens mm-hmm. and he said that he I think uh, there's a guy young man here with a lot of talent I said let's meet let's meet and um Moses did not have access to education at that time, you know, or we're talking about the the education about mental health or mental awareness. He told me at one point during our, you know, many, and I'm talking about it because I know that he's okay with that. You know, Mm -hmm. he he allows me to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And um, he said at one point, he didn't know to pray for this, but, but, he was about to commit suicide at one point, and he chose not to. And he chose to believe in himself, although he didn't know what to believe to. And he made a series of choices, you know, that completely changed the path of his life without him even knowing that there are other possibilities mm-hmm. or being able to imagine where he's going to end up. Mm-hmm. And after he came to me, and if we've, you know, been working now, and we've known each other and been very close for the past two years. He humbles me. I look at him as a walking miracle of the human spirit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He, but, and you see others in less terrible circumstances who are not able to overcome those circumstances or work mm-hmm. through that process. And this is not a judgment. None of us have the same process. You know, we all have, and what goes on inside is very difficult to put your hand in. But what I'm trying to say is that there will always be someone to blame. There will always be, you know, somebody having designs or somebody doing having an agenda and it can be a very difficult fight or a war or whatever, Mm -hmm. but blaming my parents, blaming society, blaming our system, blaming did not help me. What helped me to heal was taking responsibility.
0: I agree with agree with that 100%. And you know using the story of Moses and, and Maya and even Nina Nina oh my god so talented so 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 talented. But Maya's story Moses' story these are outliers. This is not the yep. norm. Yes. The Norm is for people to stay stuck. And so when I keep referring to the Berlin Conference, I'm not using that as, a, as an excuse or, or as a um, uh, to place blame there. But in order to heal yourself, you have to know what's wrong with you. Of course, of mm-hmm. course, definitely. There are so many people that, that are not even aware of the Berlin Conference. There are so many people in Africa right now who've never heard of it. So yes, that's true of it. So in order for me to heal, I have to go back to the root cause of it and not all the, out, uh, the things, uh, all the peripheral stuff, right? I got to get to the root of what's happening. So I think that when African people can understand what happened to them, they can begin to heal. They can then begin to say, okay, that's what happened but I have to take responsibility over myself. But it's hard for you to take responsibility when you don't even know what happened, right? And so we have to use the word consciousness. So Maya was, was just, you know, her consciousness was out there. So was Nina's. Nina's just used it, you know, kind of responded to it in a different way. But we have to elevate the consciousness of the people to understand what's really going on. So now when you understand what's really going on now you can you can react to that versus yeah. not even knowing what to react to you follow yeah. me and so yeah. that's that's so i think um when you look at the education system that that you alluded to so if certain things aren't being taught in school versus certain other things that are being taught right <laughs> uh so the, this keeps you in this 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 circle of yeah
1: yeah
0: and so it's it's uh like you say everybody processes things differently right and so there's there's no cookie cutter everybody's unique to themselves yeah. and what affects we, we could go through the same trauma but it affects us both differently right yeah you may never come out of mine you may come out of yours right uh and so that's just the reality that that we deal with so i think that when we can put people in the in the best position uh that we possibly can based on information that will empower them yes they can can make better choices you see it's difficult for uh a person like you're saying right now who, who who is experiencing these uh these serious, serious issues because of COVID may not have running water, may not have water to drink today, may not have food. They don't know, you know. And so it's very difficult for that type of person to be creative. 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 This it's, it's about, they're trying to survive. We're trying to eat. We're trying to eat. Right? Yes. And so right. too so many people too in the world people. are dealing with things outside of themselves that won't allow them to be inside of themselves where, where the real power is. Yes. And so, so, again, that's part of the, the overall strategy to keep you so confused, so out of the loop in terms of what's really going on in life. All your resources are, are just so you have so many challenges to overcome on a daily, daily, day, daily basis that you can't really stop and think and realize how powerful you are as a human being right? Yes. Uh, so this is our challenge, uh, and it's part of my, I believe it's part of my calling to be, to, to operate in this space and to help people understand uh, what's really going on, if you will. <laughs> wow. Yes. This, yes. This,
1: this, I think what well, the great thing is that to create change, you don't need a majority, you just mm-hmm. need a tipping point majority, mm-hmm. and that tipping point majority, you know, is, and, and so to me, that is a great source of hope definitely, the, 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 the educational system, they don't even study history. And whatever they study of history is the history that was written elsewhere and mm-hmm. not, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, then you get, we're not valuing our, our cultural heritage. We're not valuing our old buildings. We don't value enough uh, uh, our arts, you know. Mm-hmm. We, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's this whole thing.
0: Yes, yes, wow. So now, um, from a um, religious standpoint, the how how is the country? What's the democratic, demo, demographics of the com- country uh, <laughs> from a religious standpoint? Majority Muslim, you got Christians, you got Jews. You know, in America here, you can be in one neighborhood and you, ha- you might have 15 or 20 different do- denominations in the same, on the same street. So what is it like uh, yeah. in, in, in Ghana in terms of how people worship? What's the demographics like?
1: I think the, the majority are Christians, but uh, uh, followed closely by uh, the Muslim faith. Mm-hmm. um but but then, with the Christian faith, we have a lot of denominational churches, so it 's not just one church um and and with Islam as well i mean you have um, again depending on which region like the, the north you know is predominantly Muslim, uh, but then you find Muslims elsewhere, and then you find uh, uh, groups like the Ahmadiyya, uh, uh mm-hmm. muslims who who are um, you, you have a lot of traditional, uh, beliefs as well and, and spirituality. Um, and to me, one of the most amazing things in, in Ghana actually growing up was that in so many Guinean families, you'd have a brother who's Christian, another sister or brother who's Muslim, uh, one who, um, is a traditionalist and they're all sitting together and no problem
0: wow <laughs> that's that's yeah i mean there.
1: depending on your relationships depending on on where did you grow up in accra who you happened to meet who supported you along the way who influenced you who inspired you there's so many things whether you were sent to a school which was a mission or not and so you find a lot of, of structures um like that mm-hmm. not people are not looking at Oh my God, you have to believe what I believe, you know what I mean? Or that it's, mm-hmm. it's a very big divisive, like, uh, element, let's say, or idea. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. Anything else on your mind? You just want to throw in there for the benefit of our listeners? <laughs>
1: no, nah, I'm yours. I mean, like whatever, you know, you think I, I can, I mean, I'm not in your shoes. You know, and and you have a better idea about what you're curious about or what you'd like to know more about. Not that I have all the answers, as I said, as only I'm one person. And but if if there's anything else on your mind, yeah, perhaps.
0: Uh, there's 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 a lot on my mind. I'm trying to figure out <laughs> what I'm going to pull out of it. You know, that's that's part of the part of the issue. But no, this has been. Um, this has been great. As I said, we just, we just wanted to talk, you know, friend to friend and, and no particular structure or, or, or anything in place just, just to talk and, and get some things out there. Um, I know a lot more about my friend that I didn't know prior to this. And uh, it, it's been wonderful. I really appreciate you sharing and taking the time out of your, your busy day to, to just be with us and offer us some insight uh, based on your personal experience as to what Accra and Ghana is like. And um, I've, I've learned some things for sure. I've, I've been educated, if you will, uh, in a very simple way, a very simple way. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So I'm gonna, before I close out, I got one more probing question I'm gonna ask you, okay? Mm-hmm. If you could wave a magic wand Mm -hmm. your magic wand today that would change Ghana tomorrow forever what would it be?
1: Our human capital. Change the educational system, invest in our human capital, invest more in the arts and culture have a a unified sort of a big vision, you know, where we work on on the whole vision, many aspects of it, on the educational side, on the awareness side, on the investment in the arts and culture side, because so many times art is an articulation and an introspection of society, and it can generate change much faster than um, facts. Or many other things. And also looking at business potentials, you know, I mean, you can have all the ideals you want and you can say, oh my God, this is better. And it's great to think this way and it's great to be this way. But as you said, if the person is so caught up in surviving in this minute, you know, that's all bullshit. So you can't tell somebody, you have to come up with ideas. Okay, how do we facilitate? How do you look at jobs? How do we look at infrastructure? How do we look, for me, if there's anything, a magic wand, that, that, that would be it, to, to have that vision and uh, to follow it. Okay.
0: I, I think, like that. you know, when,
1: when, when the independence movement happened, like people like Martin Luther King came here for, when Kwame Nkrumah, you know, for his speech, they all found him so inspiring. It was going so bad in the U.S. at that time with the civil rights movement. And he, in his speech, he spoke about Ghana. He spoke about how much of an inspiration and how much strength this is, you know, giving him and, and all of that. So many others, leaders came and, but we didn't appreciate Nkrumah as a majority. Mm-hmm. We didn't believe in that vision. We didn't want to, and still, whatever he did, you know, some of the veteran artists we have today were beneficiaries of Nkrumah's investment in, in them back in the days. Some of the doctors and, and some of the best doctors or nurses who ended up some going abroad are beneficiaries of Kwan Krumah, and some have come back, or in one way or another are trying to help. The, the Akosombo dam that he did is still there. We're still benefiting from it, the highway. So many things, you know. I, I would wish to, yes, magic wand, let's heal, and let's imagine, and let's work.
0: Well, with that, let's heal, let's imagine, less work. I don't think we can end this on a better note than that. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Jamal Ali with the African Diaspora Going Home Show. We have had a conversation with our wonderful Miss Rania O'Daymat and it's been absolutely fantastic sharing her insights on life as she knows it firsthand in Accra, Ghana. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Jamal. It's it's always great talking to you or chatting to you or, (laughs) you know, I just, your energy is
0: amazing. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you so much. All right. We'll talk with you soon. Peace and love. Peace.